This morning, I argued from Ephesians 1 and 2 that when Paul says he wants them to know about the exceedingly great power of God that he exercises toward those who are believing, he then illustrates what this power in execution looks like in the resurrection, in the exaltation, in the session, in the subduing of all things, putting of all things under the feet of Christ as the first illustration. So he illustrates this exceedingly great divine power, the working of his might um, in the Son, and then he's going to illustrate it in the saints, and he does that in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. He illustrates it in the saints individually, basically telling the Ephesians, think back about the time when you were not a Christian, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and in the midst of your deadness, God made you alive together with Christ, uh, seated you in the heavenly places, and, and all those things. So this is an illustration of the saints individually. I could go farther in verses 11 and following. It's the saints corporately, Jew, Gentile, are brought into one body uh, by virtue of the same power of, of God. But in that passage in 2, 1 through 10, we have that famous text in verses 8 through 10, and we looked at verse 10, um, seeing how it was, first of all, connected to the end of verse 9, where Paul says in Ephesians 2, 9, not of works, lest anyone, excuse me, it is the gift of God, the end of verse 8, not of works, lest anyone should boast, for, or not of works, because we're actually his workmanship. Salvation by grace through faith isn't, doesn't come to us by virtue of our works. We are, in fact, products of God ourselves as believers, his workmanship. And he created us in Christ Jesus for the good works that we end up doing, but the good works that we end up doing don't earn us anything from God. It just is an expression of our gratefulness or thankfulness. And those good works themselves, God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. So there's no room at all for us to boast except boasting in the Lord. So the salvation believers in Christ enjoy is not as a result of works so that no one may boast and because we're actually his workmanship. So the good works believers perform are not unto the salvation that comes by grace through faith, but from the salvation that comes by grace through faith. And now we're going to contemplate the truth of the doctrine contained in the text. First of all, we're reminded here of the sovereignty of God and the work of the moral renovation of the soul. Obviously and clearly, I think a lot of Calvinists, I know I used to do this, I would go to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 to try to prove to Arminians that the Bible teaches the doctrine of total depravity, which I think the Bible does teach that. But it's not really why Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 is in there not to prove to unbelievers that they're sinners or to prove to Arminians that they're wrong. 
2, 1 through 3 is there so that we, believers, will reflect back to the time when you, being dead in your trespasses and sins, were made alive together, were were effectually called and, and united to Christ by the Spirit. It's for us to reflect back on the power of God executed, executed, not exerted, toward us and for us. By the way, you know the, the difference between exertion and execution. Exertion is what I do Tuesday, Thursday, Friday with my son da- Daniel. I exert power or energy when I try to keep up with him pumping weights, which I don't anymore. Uh, but then I have to be replenished, right? So power goes out from me, you know. That depletes my power source. That's exertion. God doesn't exert divine energy or power. There is no, God isn't less powerful when he exerts his power, having exerting, having exerted power, executed power. I'm saying don't use the word exertion. Having executed power doesn't deplete power in God. There's no tank that goes from full to three quarters to half, and then he's got to rush over to the divine energy pump or whatever. So we are reminded here of the sovereignty of God and the work of the moral renovation of the soul, not of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship. So we could say it this way, God is in the business of taking condemned things and renovating them. And this he does at his own initiative, not ours, and not due to any movement within us. There isn't movement within us toward God, and then God says, oh, come on in. We are not semi-Pelagians teaching that there's something in man that first moves towards God and then God complies with the movement and gives grace so that we keep coming. No, we are condemned. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And in the midst of that deadness, God brings the gospel to us. And along with the gospel Heard by our ears comes this effectual calling in the soul that actually implants new life in us, ushers us into union or fellowship with Christ every single time that kind of call comes. We have the external call and this internal call. God takes condemned things and he renovates them sovereignly when he wants to and the way he is determined to. So here, once again, Paul implies God's power working in us to make us what we could not make ourselves, believers and boasters in Christ, and those who perform good works as a result of God's work in us. God makes us into the people we can't make ourselves into. God causes us to perform good works which we can't do on our own. And hopefully, we then humbly boast in Christ. The second uh, contemplation is this. We're reminded here of the place of good works in the lives of Christians. 
They are decreed, and thus they are inevitable, right? If God has decreed the good works for us to walk into, walk in, we will walk in them. And sometimes I'm going, well, why didn't you decree more good works on my side than the ones I've done? Because I want to do more. But again, I think if God may, you know, if we got too holy, we would become less dependent. Um, though we are not saved by good works, we are saved unto and for good works. God doesn't need our good, does God need our good works? I think it was Luther who said this, God doesn't need your good works, your neighbors do. Was it Luther? Yeah, probably. If it wasn't, I said it. I got it from somebody else. God doesn't need, do our good works enhance God? Does God go, man, now I'm really happy that you did that. This changes everything. Let's get a bottle of champagne. Sorry, bad, bad analogy there. Let's celebrate. I am... I am enhanced, I am altered, I am, I am made better by virtue of your good works. Is that? We don't want to do that. Yeah, that's right, no. So God doesn't need our good works. He prepared them beforehand. He decreed them that we might walk in them. Do we need our good works? Yeah, our, you know, if you can look back and say, okay, my life's a little messy at points, but still here. I still love God and his people and his word. And I wish I was holier. I'm not what I once was. I'm not what I will one day be, John Newton. I, I am what I am by the grace of, by the grace of God. Do we need our good works? Yeah. They help us. They can encourage us. Uh, if you live, by the way, to analyze yourself by virtue of your good works, stop it. Do I have that Spurgeon quote? I don't have that Spurgeon quote. There was a good Spurgeon quote I had. And I forgot what it said, but it was good. Basically, it was the Robert Murray McShane thing. For every, you know, one look at self, take ten looks at, uh, at Christ. If you get self-introspective, you're going to be, it's going to be dead, death for you. You're going to convince yourself, you're a reprobate and you're going to hell. It's not hard to convince yourself that you're not what you ought to be. By the way, it's easy. I told the men in Brazil this too. I said, if you preach like this certain guy from the United States, I won't mention his name, but I did mention him his name down there, and then I kind of half apologized later for mentioning his name because they, they freaked out when I did so, but they all agreed with me. It's harder to preach Christ every week to your people than it is to preach self-examination every week in order to get people to doubt they're saved. It's easy to do. I could do that every week and make you squirm and train you to like sermons that make you feel like you will have one foot in hell. And I think I used to preach that way sometimes. It's harder to preach Christ every single week to the same group of people than it is to preach in such a way as to try to find out the one hypocrite in your little church. You may, everybody has to squirm because there's only one or none. 
Maybe everybody in our church membership is actually a real believer. Huh. Do you know that every Sunday when I come, I assume every single member of my church is going to heaven with me. If I assumed otherwise, the tenor of the pulpit here would be way different. And I'd invite different preachers than I have. I don't know where that came from. Third, we're reminded here. Oh, I do have the Spurgeon. I do have the Spurgeon quote. Here it is. Okay. We are reminded here of the place of good works and lives of Christians. They're essential, they're not optional, they're decreed and thus inevitable. But they are not the grounds or, or reasons for salvation or gaining heaven. It is Christ that saves us, not our efforts for Christ. Here's the quote. It is not thy hold of Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. Let me say that again. It is not thy hold on Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It is not thy joy in Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. That's a good one. Mr. Minneapolis pastor that's now retired. Joy, joy, joy. And you're going, I can't live that. It's just not practical. I must be lost. You ever done that with the Christian hedonism thing? You tried to do it, and it might last as long as you're reading the books and listening to the sermons, but then when the rubber meets the road and real life happens and you do and say stupid things or think stupid things, and then you go, where's the joy? Where's the Christian hedonism? I must be lost. Actually, many years ago, I had a deacon tell me, some of you know this man, if that's true, I'm going to hell. (laughs) So we pulled the book off the book table. It's not our joy for Christ that saves us. It's not our hold on on Christ that saves us. It's Christ that saves us. That's Mr. Spurgeon. Thank you. Third, we're reminded here that if we are saved by grace through faith, it is not of ourselves, it is not of works. We have no grounds for boasting in ourselves. And the good works that accompany our faith are all due to the power of God working in us, for us, and through us. No Grounds for boasting in our degree of piety. Matter of fact, the most holy people I know think they're way less holy than I am. And I'm going, no. Do you ever hear holy people uh, boast of their holiness? No, they don't do that, right? And the reason is because they recognize, not only from Scripture, but experientially in their own lives, they look good on the outside. But they got warfare on the inside. And the only reason they are where they are at this age is all by the grace of God. Fourth, here's another illustration of the power that renovates us when dead in trespasses and sins. It is the same power that still constantly works in us, powerfully preserving us, powerfully keeping us, powerfully sustaining us, 
That's where good works come from, and that's why salvation is not of our works, but God's in Christ for us and for our salvation in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you for its truths. We thank you for how uh, weak, impoverished souls like ours can be encouraged. Thank you for the the dose of realism in your word about the current state of true believers. There is that active warfare that we are constantly engaging in, losing some skirmishes along the way and winning others. But ultimately, the war has been won because it is not by virtue of what we do for Christ, but what Christ has already done for us that we gain the victory ultimately over all against all odds and enemies we shall uh, be with the, the the savior in his land all glorified unable to fall back into sin so we owe all of our salvation justification um sanctification adoption union with Christ, regeneration, and glorification. We owe it all to you, not to ourselves. So help us to partake of the supper with grateful hearts. Strengthen us as we sing truths to one another and to you, uh, and as we obey your word in the supper. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.